Thank you. Um, well, good morning or good afternoon. Where am I at here? I'm not used to preaching twice. Um, uh, on behalf of Community of Faith Bible Church, where I pastor, let me extend our greetings to you all. Um, my wife is here, Naomi, and my three kids. Can you guys stand up real quick? Well, I some Micaiah, Amy, and William, and my wife is Naomi. I actually have six kids. These are the smaller three who uh, made it out with us this morning. Uh, we just love Calvary Bible. Um, I'm completely at home. I don't know that I really need an introduction. I know so many of you all from just uh, ministering together for years. Uh, I, I've known your pastor for, um, uh, I think, on the campus when he and Andrea were single, I did a college retreat in, uh, back. I don't know how far back that would have been, but they weren't even married uh, when I met them. And I've known uh, Dr. Tim Carnes for uh, 30 years. We celebrated a reunion at our Bible study from Grace on Campus from Grace Community Church at UCLA. We had a little 30th year anniversary uh, this past weekend. And so Tim and I were there uh, feeling quite, oh, we used to do these old man skits when we were at UCLA. We'd put powder in our hair and bend over, hey! And then we walked in and like, I'm like, oh my, you know what I'm saying? You know, feeling off pretty old. Uh, but anyway, so I've known you all forever and thank God for your ministry and I'm just so thrilled to be here with you all. What I did earlier today and uh, what I intend to do now is a little bit different for, different from me. Uh, I, I want This is your missions conference, and so I wanted to talk like a, a real missionary. So I'm going to try to talk like a real missionary and give a missionary talk. So I'm going to expose the text, but I'm going to also talk a lot about uh, the mission area where I serve. Uh, when the Lord saved me, he brought me out to Grace Community Church. I was there on staff in the college ministry for seven years, got trained, and, and the Lord sent me out. And when he sent me out, he sent me right to the heart of South Central, right where the L.A. riots started in 92. I, I was, it was 1993 when I got there. I was like a block and a half north of uh, the L.A. riots. And then I was there for about five years, and one of my mentor pastors was retiring. So he said, Bob, why don't you bring your congregation over with us, and we'll join them together. And that was probably 1999, and I was serving there in Watts. Um, and I served there for <clears throat> about 12 years until we just recently uh, relocated. Uh, so I, I've spent um, my, my ministry in, in uh, urban, urban context. I was born and raised in urban, urban context. And so when I left Grace, I wanted to go back uh, to where my home was. And I'll make an argument. I'll call it America, Samaria. It was just my... I just had a passion and a burden for my kinsmen according to the flesh, like Paul would say in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10. And so I felt like when I left Grace, I was getting sent out as a missionary to go back into a, uh, a Samaria, America Samaria. And so I'm going to share a little bit about that as I look at uh, with us John chapter 4. And I want to look at John chapter 4 specifically because Jesus is the master evangelist. And, and I want to look carefully at John chapter 4 so we can glean some strategies from Jesus on how to overcome barriers that keep us from reaching certain communities. So I want us to look at John chapter 4. I'm going to try to survey uh, chapter 4, verse 3 through 42, looking at four strategies on how to overcome some of the barriers that keep us from making a greater impact in America, Samaria. But I'm going to ask that we pray first. Will you bow with me? Father, thank you for this hour that you've given to us, where you are uh, among your people receiving our worship. And Lord, we want to worship you. You have so richly blessed us in Christ that, Lord, we want to give the whole of our lives to you, and, and we want to be used by you. And so, Lord, I would ask that you would use us in the mission fields all over the world. And I ask that you would even help us strategically plan and, and move in such a way where we can make an impact in our urban context as well. So bless our time together. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In John chapter 4, let me jump right in. And I'm going to jump right into verse 3. I'm missing a little of the context, but, but I think I'll be clear. In verse 3, he, Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And let me stop there. Jesus is in Judea. He has to travel to Galilee and you all know the geography of Israel, that Galilee is the northernmost part of Israel and Judea is the southernmost part with Samaria right in the middle. 
So it seems when it says in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria, that's kind of a, not, not a newsflash, that, that in order to get there, you've got to go straight and you're going to pass through the region of Samaria. There's one catch, that conservative Jews wouldn't do that. They would cross, go east and cross the Jordan River, go north through Peora, and then Peoria, and then they would cross back over the Jordan into the land of Galilee, saying clear, completely clear of Samaria. So when the text says in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, it's saying something more than just logical, geographical necessity. In fact, the way that this word must is used even in the immediate context, it implies more than just a logical necessity. Look with me at John chapter 3. I'll give you three passages. In John chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. This is, this is not just a logical necessity. This is the will of God. That, that in order to be saved, you must be born again. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And what made it necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up is that this is God's will. This is how sinners will be saved. There, there's no other way to be saved other than what Christ accomplished for us on the cross and us being born again. So here when it speaks of, you know, must, it's not talking about just logical necessity. It's talking about the will of God. This must be done because it is the will of God. And so in chapter 4, verse 4, when it says he had to pass through Samaria, he didn't take the route of most conservative Jews of the time because he was on mission. He had a task to accomplish. God's will was before him, so he had to pass through Samaria. It was a missional necessity because God had sent him to accomplish something. And the something is huge. It's here, Jesus had to go through Samaria because there was a, there were all kinds of boundaries and barriers that would have kept the Jew from naturally going there. There were prohibitions or things that would inhibit someone from just going there. I mean, you can just think of waking up one morning, you want to go somewhere, and, and you, you know, we might go to Santa Monica, and I might hang out in Westwood, uh, or I might go to OC, and, but, but, but people just don't wake up in the morning saying, hey, I know what, let's go down to Watts, let's hang out at 87 The Grape. Get a little motel, you can laugh at that. Get a little motel and just hang out. People just don't wake up thinking, hey, I, I, I want to go there. You just don't wake up thinking that typically. And here, the text says Jesus is thinking, he is moved by God's will that it is necessary. There's something that has to happen according to God's plan and God's will and God's purposes that he had to fulfill in it, and he had to go through Samaria to do it. So the first point I would suggest for us is this, that in order to reach our Samarias, you have to be intentional. And here the Samaria is a real place. This is not like just metaphorically just the place close to you that has a different cultural context. I'm going to use it metaphorically in a minute. But here this is uh, a real place. It says in the Great Commission we're to go and reach the nations. And, and Jesus delineated how that process was to happen in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. I invite you to turn there. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the theme passes for our our conference this weekend, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says um, that they were to go to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and give them power so they could fulfill the mission that God had sent them to. And it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And we, we think the remotest part of the earth is when we send missionaries to, you know, foreign lands. We're the remotest part of the earth. The gospel started in Jerusalem and Judea. Their first church was all Jewish, and they had to cross all kinds of barriers to get into Samaria and then reach the outermost parts of the world, language barriers, fear barriers, transportation barriers, financial barriers. They just had to establish in context. They had to cross over all kinds of barriers. But here the plan is do that. 
reach of Judea, cross that barrier, get into Samaria. But the church didn't do that. The early church of the early Jews, they, they didn't do that. Uh, there's something natural about just being around people who look like me and talk like me and have the same cultural background. It's just a natural like inertia where that, that we don't want to cross some of these barriers. And so in order to move his church out to fulfill the Great Commission, it says in Acts chapter 1 that God had to bring persecution upon the early church. He allowed a great persecution, I could say, to arise. And then he scattered them, it says in verse 1, and he scattered them throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And when they went out, when God scattered them through persecution, he had to make it a little uncomfortable for them to stay put. And they they went out preaching, it says in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching, and and they saw the fruit of the gospel, success of the gospel as they went out. Um, But they had to go through Samaria. Christ, what he models in John 4, makes of necessity for the church too. The church has to reach the Samaria's. And it could be difficult reaching a Samaria, Samaria, Samaria. Historically, this was a hard spot for the Jews. Uh, some, of, some of you know the history. When Solomon sinned because of God's love for David, he didn't split the kingdom under Solomon, but he split the kingdom of Israel under his son Rehoboam. Jeroboam took the northern kingdom, and he didn't want to lose his kingdom to the southern kingdom, so he built an idolatrous temple with, with two golden calves within the worship in the north. And so right from 900-ish B.C., that there was a separation between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it was a separation over religion. They, they were idolatrous, idolaters in the north. And then God judged the northern kingdom through the nation of Assyria, and he took them away into captivity, but he left some there. And they brought the king of Assyria brought in some Gentiles to mix in with the people, and, and, and to keep them from being united and being in a rebellion against them, he just mixed all these people together. But there were Gentiles now mixing with Jews. And so not only was the separation between Judea and Samaria one of religion, but now it's even bloodline. It's, it's, they're different ethnically. Culturally, ethnically, they're just different. And they became, in the Jews' eyes, unclean. Their sin was too much for devout Jews. And so they, they, they were separated with all these barriers, relationally, ethnically, religiously. There was a separation that went on now for hundreds of years, starting in 900 B.C., right until the return of the southern kingdom in, 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 in 530-ish, somewhere there about B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah, they built a new temple but they, they didn't want to have any dealings with the Samaritans. So they wouldn't let the Samaritans come. So the Samaritans built their own temple. And now you had two rival temples. And people from the same historic bloodline, but now separated ethnically, relationally, worship. And they didn't like each other. There was tensions there. They built up over hundreds of years. So starting 900 B.C., right to the time of Jesus, almost a thousand years. A wall being built, this invisible wall between these two people sharing the same nation. Our same land. And Jesus wanted to tear down that wall. He was on mission to tear down that wall. And so he had to go through Samaria. So the first point in terms of looking at Jesus reaching Samaria, it has to be intentional. It just doesn't have you cross and you reach into places that you may not feel very welcome because there are historical tensions there. Um, you know, when Isaiah was called to preach in Isaiah chapter 6, God had graciously touched him. He saw the holiness of God, thought he was being destroyed. God touched him. And, and Isaiah responds to the grace of God, here am I, send me. And then God tells him, you're going to go and preach, and people aren't going to want to listen. They're not going to respond. And then Isaiah's immediate response was, how long do I got to do that? <laughs> it's, it's natural for us not to want to go places where we may not feel initially very welcomed or invited because um, there could be tensions. And so here it is. That's the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet Jesus is setting for us, uh, I think, not only, uh, you know, for him practically reaching Samaria, but showing us a model on how to do it. It has to be done intentionally. And then secondly, in verses, uh, the following verses, that to reach Samaria, you can't fear man. You have to fear God. We have to fear God if we're going to reach into our Samarias. And let me pick it up at verse 5. 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And let me just point out a couple things here. This is just radical. This whole encounter is just absolutely countercultural. There's nothing politically correct about what Jesus is doing. This is absolutely radical. The first thing is that he's talking to a woman. And the text says that, you know, he said to her, give me a drink. In the context here, culturally speaking, conservative rabbis would never do that. And the disciples even respond that way. In verse 27, when they returned, they said, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? And, and, and it just is that they're looking at Jesus, talk to this woman, and like, is he supposed to be doing that? And they're looking at each other, I don't know, he is. But culturally speaking, this just would not have happened. Jesus is not concerned about the culture. He's not concerned about man's ways. He's not trying to appear in, in, in such a way where he gets the, the, the favor of man or the blessings of man. He is on mission from God. And God sent him to save sinners, men and women. So when Christ dies on the cross, he's dying to to bring people of all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of differences together in his cross and make them one body, including women. In order to reach them, you have to talk to them. So he's sharing with this woman. But it wasn't just any woman. She was a very immoral woman. Let's strike two, that this is just radical. The text says that she came in the sixth hour to the well. The sixth hour is noonday. It had been very hot. Women who would have, it would have been the, uh, the woman's duty uh, to get water. She would have gone early or she could have gone when it's cool in the evening, but certainly not at the peak heat of the day. But this woman goes there because she doesn't want to go with the other women. Uh, she, she, she wants to go alone. She doesn't want to be seen. She, she's scandalous and she knows her life is scandalous Even as a Samaritan, her life is scandalous. And she wants to go alone. Later, the text tells us she has had all these men in her life. life. So she comes alone, and Jesus is talking to not just any old woman. He is talking to the scandalous, immoral woman. And and strike three is is the big one. She she points out in verse 9, how is it that you... Being a Jew, ask me, since I am a Samaritan. I am a Samaritan and you are a Jew. Somehow she identified him as Jewish. I don't know if it's because of the way he was dressed. I don't know if it's because of his accent. I, I, we don't know how. But, 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 but their differences, their racial or ethnic differences, is a big deal to her. That, that you know, that we just don't do this. It's almost like she wants to give him a little like lesson. Do, do you know? Do you know where you are? Do you know that we don't just we don't it, we, don't, we don't like fellowship like this? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. I remember one time. This was years ago. I was going to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffle. Uh, some of you maybe have gone there. I was going to the one that's in the hood hood, and I'm going there, and I pull up at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffle, and I'm there, and the receptionist looks at me, and she just said, "You don't know where you are, do you?" And I had on my, like, UCLA blue jacket. I was looking cool, go Bruins, you know, the whole thing. And she said, you don't have an idea where you are, do you? I'm like, I do now, you know. I'm in the bloods area. I'm going to get this jacket off real fast. 
Um, and, and it's almost, she's almost has that, this, this has that feel to it. Like this, what's happening here just doesn't happen. It, it shouldn't be happening. I'm a woman. She's an immoral woman. She's a Samaritan. There are all these dividers and barriers culturally. This just shouldn't happen. And so here she is saying that to Jesus. But Jesus has a mission. And his mission is not to preserve the culture of the, the majority culture of the Jews of the day. He's not, not looking to do that. He's not looking. To, he, he's on a mission that God sent him to save sinners of all stripes, of all backgrounds. In order for that to happen, you have to go. There's got to be a connection. There's got to be barriers that have to be crossed in order for us to, to reach people wherever they are in order to reach them with the gospel. Um, but this, there's something more radical that happens here. I love reading the Bible and reading, looking at Jesus through the eyes of like his just leadership. Uh, he, he just didn't care what people thought. <laughs> he just didn't fear a man. I mean, in, in Luke 15, it says how uh, tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. Sinners are those who, they weren't trying to obey the law. They were openly rebellious to the law and tax collectors were the hated traitors. And they're all coming to him. Jesus is filling up a church with tax collectors and sinners. And all the devout Jews are like, they're looking at him like, you can't, you can't do that. You can't just, these people just can't keep coming to you like that. And then Jesus tells them a story about the prodigal son. And he thinks of the most scandalous scenario he possibly could think of for a conservative Jewish hearer to listen to. He says that there's this father and he and his son comes to him like, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my money now. And then the dad could have had him lashed. The dad could have had him uh, lose his inheritance. But then the dad gives him, gives him a third of his wealth. And then the boy goes out and just uses them on, on prostitutes and wild living and ends up in, in, with, with pigs. And then as he's returning back, the dad, that's what the dad runs and hugs and kisses him. And he throws a, a, a banquet and invites everybody from the village to come. Come back for that boy? Come back and celebrate him after what he did? And then the father, he celebrates his son. And the point is that God is far more gracious than we possibly could think. There is no such thing as a sinner, a type of sinner, a class of sinner, groups of sinners that exceed from the grace of God. When God saved the apostle Paul, he was saving a terrorist. It's like he's, he's ISIS today. He's pulling into churches, dragging people out, stoning them and killing them. And God saved him to put his mercy and his grace on display. And here Jesus is displaying his mercy and grace for us today. That he is having this encounter with a woman, a moral woman, and she's a Samaritan. None of those things can keep us off of our gospel mission. It has to be intentional. And it has to be radical. We can't get our, our, our cues from the culture in terms of fulfilling our mission. We've got to get it from the Bible and looking at Jesus. And, and, and then... And then he asked her for a drink of water. And she's like, this, this is what? How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That, 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 that there's, there's no interaction that we have with you like what you're asking me to do. Now, the disciples were in the city buying food, so some, they, the, some, some things could happen. But what specifically is happening here just couldn't, couldn't happen. Even in her mind, this is just too shocking. It says in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. And so, so the, her, her concern is, her point is that this, I, I get it that you want water from the well. Jesus had just walked some 20 miles, and it's hot. This is from Judea. To Samaria, where, where they are, it's a long, long walk, six hours of walking, and he's there, he's tired. I get it that you might be thirsty, but you don't have a cup. So in order for you to drink, that means you have to use, get my cup and drink water out of my cup. And, and, and I really appreciate what John Piper does at this point. Some of you are familiar with his ministry. He had grown up in South Carolina and segregated since the time of segregation. His church voted not to have any uh, blacks join his church. Before he repented and got saved, he was an uh, open racist. 
And he uses this illustration for us so we can get it. He says, let's go back in our own American history. And it helps us kind of see what's going on right here. That picture Jesus being in Alabama, deep down in in the south with Bull Connor and Governor George Wallace, segregation now and segregation tomorrow and segregation forever. And Jesus walks up and there are two water fountains, colored and one white. And there's a colored woman there. And Jesus asks her for something to drink. She doesn't know what to tell him. Like, uh, I'm a colored woman. I can't get water from the white water fountain. And, and you don't even have a cup. H- how's that going to work? And he wants her to go to the colored water fountain, fill up her cup. And he's going to drink out of her cup. And why is Jesus doing that? There's only one race, y'all. We know that. We all came from Adam. The whole idea, the whole construct of racism is, and we talk about racism, because of just the evil of man's heart. In Genesis chapter 11, while God called us that we would be for his glory and made us for that, they were trying to make a name for themselves. And I have one friend who just, it's very helpful how he describes this, that, that that didn't stop. We didn't stop trying to make a name for ourselves when God scattered us. And he scattered us into all these nations and people groups, <clears throat> and every people group is trying to make a name for themselves. Whatever problems they have, they minimize. Whatever strength they have, they, they aggrandize those to, to the minimize of what other people are and what other people do. And so we're always trying to push back and make our own name great and our own self greater than someone else. And here the Jews were thinking that way of the Samaritans. In our own American history, that happened. That, that really happened. That America has a Samaria. And it, it has a long history just like the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans is a long historical divide. Uh, when most folks came to America, they came uh, looking uh, to the land of the free to work hard and, 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 make, and, make, and make a name for themselves. A uh, long journey overseas, and they would start off poor in slums or wherever and work, work their way up. A lot of our parents came across and very, very poor. It was really different for Africans when they came here. They didn't come on the top of the boat. They came in the middle pass, was chained in the bottom of the boat, stacked like cargo, uh, and the vomit, the feces, everything washing back and forth. Many didn't make the journey. It's called the middle pass because Europeans would go from Africa, uh, from Europe to Africa, and then they would go to America, and the trip back to, before they go back to Europe, that middle part, it's called the middle passage, and millions and millions and millions of Africans came to these shores that way as early as 1619 in Jamestown. No hope of earning from the fruit of your labor. No hope of owning anything. Uh, no hope of getting educated. Cut your tongue off for that. Uh, you were, they were property. Worked for 250 years until the Emancipation Proclamation came, followed by the 14th Amendment that gave all those who were born on American soil the right of American citizens. But then segregation laws came for the next 100 years. So I'm talking 350 years that America had two Americans. People would come and work hard, but there was a group of Americans that uh, the law said you, you, can't, you can't get this job. The law said you can't go to this school. The law said that you can't go to this amusement park. You can't go to this restaurant. The law said you can't live here or there. The, the law even said that you could. It was even segregation in the church. The, the, the law was in some places that blacks couldn't even join certain churches. And so in 17, and I, and I forgot the years, the 1700s, that a man named Richard Allen was in a church and they were starting to pray. So he stopped in the white section. He was forced to leave the church. And, and at that point, he said, we have to start our own church. The African Episcopal Methodist Church started. So even the church was divided. There were two Americas, one if you weren't black, one if you were black, and you excluded from all kinds of opportunities. And for over 350 years, that was the law of the land in America. And it created a Samaria. There was a wall. There was a barrier that couldn't be legally crossed. You couldn't jump in any old pool. It had to be. You couldn't go to any old bathroom. You couldn't go to any old restaurant. That, for 350 years, all kinds of cultural differences and barriers and relational tensions happened as a result of that. And just because you change the law doesn't change hearts. My, my, my dad, he came out of the military in the early 60s, and he wanted to move our family to the north so that he'd have more opportunities. 
he applied to the telephone company. He was a radio technician in, in the Marines, so he applied for the telephone company, and they said that they wouldn't even let him take the entrance exam. They said a black man is not smart enough to take the test. So he had to appeal to the Urban League, and the Urban League allowed him to take the test. He passed the test. So he's the first black installer uh, in, in the state of New Jersey, in the north, in the 1960s. Uh, and, and then he, it, was, it was a hard place for, for our family, for me in particular. I was fighting all the time, gang fights on my street. I'm carrying a knife before I'm 10. I had a little Napoleon complex, a little man's complex. I, I had to fight everybody. I just got to fight all the time. I did okay, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just fight, I just getting fights all the time, all over the place. And my dad's like, this boy ain't going to make it. So, so my dad wanted to transfer to Virginia. And, but the transfer to Virginia, uh, that was hard because in 1973, there weren't any black testers in the state of Virginia in the telephone company. And so through affirmative action, he was allowed to get the job. And that kind of almost backfired. Well, he didn't earn his way, and they just gave him the job. And so he got blackballed. No one wanted to talk to my dad. But became, because he came from a large city, he was used to a heavy workload. Out of the work, work group of 10, he was doing 40% of the work. And so I said, hey, we like Robert. <laughs> it's not that bad. Um, and then ten, almost 10 years go by. It's early 80s now. And all of my dad's coworkers have been you know, promoted to management. And my dad's boss came and said, Robert, I really like you, so I'm going to tell you the truth. You're not going to get promoted to management here. Uh, but they get a job that um, you know, will compensate you with the pay that you know, you're worth, why don't you move into sales and you'll make that kind of money? And uh, so he moved into sales. That didn't go really well. It was just a lot of racism and tension that my dad had experienced. And we're in the 80s, right, early 80s. And uh, so he appealed to human resources, and it was so overwhelmingly obvious that the discrimination my dad was experiencing. The telephone company said, Robert, what do you want? We will give you anything that you want. You know what my dad asked for? He said, all I want is the same pay. I'll go back to my old job, just give me the same pay. He didn't want anybody fired. He wasn't, wasn't protesting. He just said, just give me my same pay. And this is in the, the 80s. When, when I was there in Virginia, uh, it was like remembering the Titans. I'm playing football in the early, late 70s, early 80s, and our school was 50% white, 50% black. We all played together, had great relationships. But after practice, the white guys went this way and the black guys went that way. And it, was, it wasn't, we just, that's how it was. We all just lived with that. Uh, that's, that's how America was for, for, in a lot of places. It was just, there was a Samaria, there was, there were walls there. Some people did quite well in their Samaria. Blacks always had to live together, especially in Los Angeles. It was illegal to live on the West side. So the poor, the educated, the rich, that it was all, it's eclectic community. We all live together. And it's still like that pretty much now where I live is a nice little middle-class block. Sometimes I think people look at the news and think, man, everybody on every corner has Uzis. You can't go down to the hood. You'll get shot up and killed. I live in a really nice community, but if you go two blocks, three blocks south of my house, uh, one of the ch- my church members was shot seven times by a gang member. I get a knock on my door, Bobby, Bobby, Bruce has been shot. I rush to the hospital, and all the bullets grazed him. I'm like, man, you are faster than Flash. How did you pull that off? They shot him at point blank range. I mean, they were from here to that speaker shooting him, and all the bullets just grazed him. Um, America has a Samaria. I don't think people who've grown up with certain challenges of living in a Samaria need to use that as an excuse or a victim card and I need a free pass to make it easy for me. I, I, I'm not advocating that. I don't think that's right at all. But, but, but nor do I think it's right to, to look at, now I'm talking almost 400 years, 400 years of legalized segregation and separation to look and just say indifferently, get over it. Why don't they get over it yet? I, I'm into the 80s now. And, it's, and so, and things are still going on. So it's like, why don't they just get over? Why do they keep bringing it up? Just look at the whole world. When there are tensions between people groups, um, it, uh, it, the relationships don't go smoothly. The Hatfields and the McCoys, the Catholics and the uh, uh, Irish, or the Protestants and the Catholics. And, and, and you just think of the, in, in Rwanda, what happened. Look at South Africa. Uh, th- think of even our own American history. That... That America exists because the colonists said we don't like the fact that we don't have representation the way we want in government. And so they were tar representatives of Europe. They would have Boston Tea riots. They would have riots, y'all. Real riots. And they started a war. They were killing people because they didn't feel like they were represented by the government. And we celebrate that every year. We, we, we call it the 4th of July. And we got them. They still call it the American Revolt in Europe. 
And people are sure preaching Romans 13. Don't they just obey the law? But, but, but it's natural. It's part of human nature. If you don't feel represented by the government and there's tension in those relationships, that, that there'll be problems. And I'm not saying that's excusable. I'm just saying that at least we need to have an empathetic ear looking at how our Samaria came about and understanding the tensions that exist there. Now, we're, we're not unbelievers. We have an answer to all that. And the answer to what Jesus is doing, that there aren't particular kinds of people groups and their sins are so great that God just won't deal with them. Here, Jesus sees a more woman and he goes to reach her. He reaches the Jews because of their sin. He, he reaches the, the Samaritans because of their sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's reaching sinners of all stripes, of all kinds, of all backgrounds. And we're watching him do that. And he's modeling for us how we reach our own Samaria. It has to be intentional. We gotta stop letting Fox News and other places drive our agenda. The Bible has to drive our agenda. And what the Bible tells us to do is that we've got to reach Judea and Samaria. We've got to cross all kinds of barriers to do that. And Jesus is doing that. And I'm thankful to God that your church does that. Hope again, you all have great ministries where you're reaching out. Pastor Carnes and I have been working on a project, hopefully it'll come about this year, where we're going to start an expository training ministry down in Los Angeles in the urban part for pastors there. We're hoping to do something like that. And why? Because God has put us on mission. And and that mission includes Judea, people like us, but also includes our our neighbors who may be very different from us and have a tense, hostile kind of background historically. We still have to relate to them, and we can uniquely do it because we have the gospel, and we have a gospel call. And that's what the next point, that that not only is Jesus intentional, not only is he not getting his cues from the culture, he's not trying to—he's not—he's fearing God, but thirdly— um, he, he, you, to reach Samaria, you, Samaria, you have to do with the gospel. There are all kinds of social ministries to try to make an impact here and there. And Jesus certainly wants us to be compassionate for people's uh, felt needs. He fed the 5,000, as it were, in John chapter 6. But when it kept coming, he said, you're just coming for free food. And he kept offering them more than that. And he offers this woman so much more than just some, resolving some of the cultural, social tensions. He shares with her the gospel. He tells her that about living water, and she hears about that in verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And here Jesus sees, talk to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit in chapter 3. talks explicitly about the Holy Spirit later in chapter 7 and 8. Here he's telling her that you have a thirst and you're trying to satisfy. You want love in all the wrong places. That you're, you're involved with all of these men that Jesus is saying that I can give you something that will satisfy your soul. And what satisfies a soul? The salvation of God. And so we can see people and they're struggling, they're fighting, that they, they want something. We know what they need. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've got to go and say that God, by virtue of his salvation, gives you his Holy Spirit and it will keep bubbling up to satisfy you. So you don't have to turn back to those drugs. You don't have to turn back to those sins. You don't have to turn. You can turn to Jesus. And he satisfies the soul. And so he offers to her eternal life. And, um, but... And then he, but he tells her about her sin. But look at how he does it. He, he's not looking at the news and saying, <laughs> you know, the Samaritans, there they go again. He, he's, he t- he's gentle. Jesus is full of compassion and mercy. When he sees the destitute, he, he has compassion. He tells her, go, verse 16, and call your husband and come here. And, and the woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you've, You have correctly said, I have no husband for you've had five. He exposes her sin, but he's not, he's not like, it's not with an air of haughtiness. Look at those people's sins. We don't sin like those people. We all sin. Culture's made by men that sin in every culture. And it might be different. We just get used to our kind of sin. But but here, the the answer to the gospel is not as if the gospel can't reach certain sinning groups. It reaches all groups. We just have to go and bring it. Jesus is intentional. He's not fearing man. He's fearing God. And he goes and he is preaching the gospel to this woman. And she kind of gets it. 
She, she, she starts asking these Bible questions like, you people say we need to go down and worship in Jerusalem, and we say we worship here. Can you answer my question for me? And Jesus is saying a day and an hour is coming where it won't be about these, these external expressions of relating to God. He's not trying to impose upon her <clears throat> that she has to become Jewish in order to have a right relationship to God. He's not trying to press upon her the dominant culture. You have to be like us. You have to assimilate to us in order to be right with God. He's saying when, when, when the Holy Spirit takes, heart, take, take, takes control of your heart, then you'll be a genuine worship. You can worship God right where you are in Samaria. It, it doesn't mean that you have to change how you look externally. You don't have to change your music styles. You don't have to change this necessarily. That you have to love Jesus and, and worship him. And God brings that about when he saves people. And so sometimes we just hear messages like that. We have to, you know, trying to save America and make it great again. That's not our mission. Our mission is to save sinners. And it's okay if they're different than we are. Revelation 5 now says at the end of it all, they're going to be from every tribe, tongue, language. How do they all get there? Because Christians are reaching them all, not trying to ask them to accommodate to how we are culturally. And, 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 And in order to do that, then we've got to stay on gospel mission and know that the gospel is the answer for all of the needs of all the different kinds of people that we see. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. We can say amen to that. Amen. amen. And, and I know you all know this. Let me just be frank and explicit. Um, that, that she sees this. She sees this difference, this, this, this racial difference. She knows of the history of the racism between the two groups. She, she knows of all that. And there's no false guilt here on Jesus he, he didn't create the, humanly speaking, he didn't create the Samaritan problem. It's there. It's a historical reality. 900 years built this wall. In America, there's been 400 years of built a wall. And, and it's no false guilt to say that, but we can do something. That, that God has given us a mission to do something. We have to be intentional. We can't fear man and get my cues from the news. But, but I can take the gospel and I can make a difference. Without any false guilt or just, I can just go. Uh, and, and without, you know, and, and, and that word cuts both ways. Uh, on one side, it's not saying, okay, I, I'm in this difficult situation, and I'm in a country where Langston Hughes said America was never America to me. But, you know, God is sovereign. God uses circumstances and suffering. He uses everything. And he can use that to draw me to Christ. I can't use my context and my difficulties as a victim card, <clears throat> give me a free pass, and it should be easier for me. But, but then I said it already. But then on the other side, we can't be indifferent and say, why don't they just get over it? That, that when we see problems, Jesus moves, and we can just go and share the gospel and, and, and make a difference. Um, and then this, this is the last point, um, and I'll be done. Not only is Jesus intentional, not only is he uh, not fearing man and he's gospel-centered, but well, there's, there's hope. Um, to reach Samaria, that we've got to, you know, move in hope. We're, we're, we're trusting God. Um, and the God who has, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And when he sends us, he says, the Lord be with you always. So we can go anywhere. And, and, and Jesus is with us, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. So we can make an impact all over the place. We have to believe that. That this woman, when she finds out that Jesus, the Messiah, she believes in him. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And then the text says, at this point, the disciples came back. They were amazed that he was speaking to this woman. She leaves her water pot, but she didn't leave without water. She had the living water. She was different. She was saved. She was Born again, in verse 29, she, 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 she loves Jesus. She, she knows the Messiah. <clears throat> and she wants, she, she's so consumed with Jesus, she wants these other people around her to know the Messiah as well. And so she says, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. And then she says it so humbly. She says it almost as if looking for a no answer because she's talking to men and she didn't want to assume this teaching position over them. So she gives them, she makes it easy for them to say, no, this is not the Christ, is it? And then it says in verse 30, something stunning happened. They went out of the city and were coming to him. The Samaritan woman, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan woman. She's a morally unclean. She's, uh, her life is scandalous, even by Samaritan. She saw herself like that, but she's different now. She approached him as if she's a scandalous and moral woman, but she was different. 
She, she, she was an ambassador of the king at that point. She had been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so she shares and the whole city comes back. Whereas the trained disciples, they were there in the same city. And they came back with only food. They walked by the same people, but they didn't see the intentionality of their mission. They, they, they didn't recognize that God was calling them to be a part of this. They were thinking culturally, what, what, what do Jews do when we're around Samaritans? We don't connect. We don't draw bridges or, or build bridges that, that, that we say isolated. And, and they weren't using the, 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 the gospel of Christ that they had, had demonstrated to them that they had seen. And so they're there right in the same city around the same people, come back with nothing but food. And Jesus tells them and teaches them, Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. All the the ripe barley harvest is all around them. Uh, There were these people ripe for salvation all around them, but as much as they may not have recognized it, they still saw uh, a wall that separated them. And they stayed behind the wall and didn't cross the barriers to reach these people when they were right there. And then Jesus explains it furthermore. This was like a proverbial saying. He says, already, verse 36, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and He who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The the parable is that some will sow, some will reap, almost as if God was going to bring the increase. But we've got to go and be on mission, sharing the gospel. And we'll either be sowers or reapers in places that we don't, Think that we can make an impact, but we can now because we're ambassadors for the king. We can make an impact even in Samaria. And look at verse 39. For or from that city, many Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified and told, told me, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two more days. So he actually, he actually stayed there in Grape Street. He got a little motel and stayed there and watched. And maybe it's not the safest place to stay, but, but God is with us. I have friends who I went to seminary with. They go to some of the most hardest places in the world. And I am like utterly amazed that they go there. And I'm, I'm the most reluctant missionary. I went on a mission trip to Zimbabwe, and we almost got arrested twice. Uh, the last time um, we got we were, we were, the missions, uh, our outreach was over. We were training pastors, and we were um, our contact was taking us to a safari. And so we were going to the safari. We're out of the city limits, and we got pulled over. And the cops can just do that. Zimbabwe has uh, one of the worst dictators in the world, and so they just pulled us over. They can find you and do whatever. So he pulled us over, and our driver was trying to negotiate. He got really frustrated, and they just said they wanted to search the car. I'm like, search the car. This, these folks we connected with to do this, this pastor's training thing, we wanted them to own it, so we wanted them to pay for half of it. We weren't sure they'd have the money, so we brought the other half. You know what the other half of that money was? And the trunk in our backpack. That was like $20,000 in cash. I'm like, Lord, that's why I didn't want to come. I'm going to get arrested. <laughs> we throw it in jail in Zimbabwe. So I have we'll come up with some charge that we, you know, are like, you know, money smugglers or something like that. So the guy's in the trunk going through, and we're just praying. I'm scared to death. And we're just praying. And there was no, no zip lock, no, no hidden pouch the money was in. It was a flap. You pull back the flap, and all this money's there. And he didn't see it. And we drove off. Um, God is with us. He re- Jesus really means that, y'all. When he said, Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, that when he sends us out, we, we go with the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, and we can go anywhere. I have a buddy who uh, was you know, missionary, trained at the Master Seminary, and almost driving back and forth to the airport. He was running out of gas one time in South Central, right off the 110. And you know what he was praying? Okay, Lord, bring me to a gas station where I can really share my faith and, and see someone get saved, just like John 4. You know what he was praying? 
Lord, please don't let me run out of gas. Please don't let me run out of gas. Please don't let me have to stop in South Central. <laughs> but, but Jesus is, is in South Central. He's, he's not a, a local deity. He's a sovereign of the universe. And he sends us everywhere, and he will be with us. Uh, and here the text ends by saying in verse 42, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus is the answer in our rural communities. He's the answer in our suburban communities. He's the answer in the country. He's the answer in the city. <clears throat> Jesus is the answer, and he sent us with that message to go everywhere. And we have to stop in our Samaritans to do that. And again, I, I just thank the Lord for what you all do. I would just encourage you that, to pray for our Samaritans, uh, to keep strategically your eye on opportunities. There are ministries there that you can work with, like, like the Los Angeles Bible Training School. You all have a list of ministries that you work with. This is your missions weekend. And I would just say, make sure that we consider our, all of our communities. I don't know what's going to happen to America. I'm, I'm not very optimistic. I think I see this, the fabric of our nation is pulling each other apart. But it can't be like that with us. <laughs> that Christ died to make us one. He didn't die for a divided church. And he gave us a gospel mission where we can unite people. We really can unite people. And we have to do it through the gospel. And it brings all kinds of people together. I'll close with this. that had, uh, you know, I mentioned 30 years ago when Tim and I met. Uh, the Lord brought us together. We were roommates. We were studying together in ministry. And here, this, this kid who grew up just in a completely urban context, Tim Moore, kind of closer to rural kind of context. And here it is. We were roommates together, uh, ministry partners together, and friends together. But more importantly, we will be brothers together through all of eternity. Brothers together through all of eternity. Because Christ, all those barriers that separate us, he tears them all down. And he makes us one in him. And he's given us the privilege of that ministry of reconciliation to go and preach a message where we can literally see that happen. God bless you. Father, I just pray for all of us that you would give us, Lord, just a burden in our heart, Lord, just to see needs and to see that you're the answer. That when we look, Lord, at troubles and strife and problems, Lord, that we wouldn't have hardened hearts with indifference but we would have hearts moved with compassion. And like Isaiah said, here I am. Maybe you can send me. Maybe we can send our church. And maybe we can pray. Because your gospel is powerful to save Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and uh, barbarians, that, Lord, your gospel has the power to save and reconcile sinners to you and to each other. I pray you bless us with boldness and compassion. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you.